morning. My name is Kelsey. Our Bible reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 28, on page 1188. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May the God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. One of the ministers here. Lovely to be in church with you as always. If you can have your Bible open or keep them o- keep it open at one Thessalonians chapter five, page eleven eighty eight. That'd be really helpful to me. Imagine to you as well. Let's pray and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, help us to please you while we wait for your Son to return. To hear more about that this morning, to put it into practice, that we might indeed be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. These days, the uh, the type of uh, restaurant that you go to if you're looking for a cheap, good meal is a Thai restaurant. Uh, everybody enjoys Thai. In fact, raise your hands if you don't enjoy Thai food here. Yeah, I had to throw someone out from the earlier service. <laughs> you need to leave. Um, but the thing is, Thai restaurants haven't been around in Australia for all that long, like maybe only the last 25 years. Uh, before that, the go-to restaurant in Australia for kind of cheap uh, you know, easy food was the Chinese restaurant. You know, almost all suburbs had one. The dishes they served up were delicious. I mean, long before you ever heard of Pad Siu or Musselman beef curry, people would chow down on sweet and sour pork, you know, beef and black bean sauce, lemon chicken, Mongolian lamb. And if you were from like a wealthy posh family, you might even order honey king prawns. Now, the food was greasy. I'm guessing it was inauthentic. It was laden with MSG. It was altogether wonderful, wasn't it? Great. And it wasn't just available in the cities. Here's the great thing. You could go to any country town, even the small ones, and be pretty sure that they would have a Chinese restaurant too. Except something was different in the regional Chinese restaurants. Perhaps they didn't want to freak out the locals who might have been a little bit behind the times, you know. So they would offer the regular kind of Chinese dishes, but you could have them with the choice of rice or chips, you know. And then uh, you'd look down the menu and, and you would also find there would be spaghetti on the menu and steak and omelettes. And you knew that it was all good. It's all good. Uh, it would all keep you alive, 
but it didn't seem like there was anything really tying it all together. You know, it was, it was good, but it was a bit all over the place. Here's a picture of the uh, Happy Land Chinese restaurant in Outback Queensland. Like, I'm feeling warm already, aren't you? You don't all have to, it's fine, it's okay. Uh, inside looks like that, like I'm feeling nostalgic. Oh, those two people are having a great time. True story on the menu, the banquet menu for dessert is chocolate Bavarian cheesecake. <laughs> what is with that, right? Now when we come to the last part of uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 5, it seems a little bit like an outback Chinese restaurant. There's lots on offer. It's all good. It will keep you well fed spiritually. But, but what is tying it all together? You know, what is the unifying flavor, if you like? Because there's bits there about respecting your leaders, uh, stuff about relationships with one another. There's exhortations to prayerfulness and thankfulness, as well as to testing prophecy. I mean, what is it that connects all the dots? And then I, I think I figured it out. I think it's all about being a church that pleases God. You know, our series is called Pleasing God While We Wait. And we've seen this graphic every week of the fella waiting on the platform, looking the other way to the exit sign that's above his head. He's waiting. And last week we talked at length about waiting for the return of Jesus. And this final chapter, this final passage signs off with instructions so that uh, a church might also please God while it waits. Firstly, that the Thessalonian church of infant, really baby Christians, might please God as it waited for Christ's return, but also hopefully that we too might also please God some 2,000 years later. Now today we're going to see that Paul's instructions can be grouped into pleasing God in our relationships with one another, uh, pleasing God in our personal sort of spiritual disposition, and then also pleasing God in our reception of his spirit. So let's get straight underway. The first way in which a church can please God is in its relationships with one another. And and even this section uh, really has two subsections. We are to please God in terms of our regard for our Christian leaders and also in terms of our encouragement of one another. I must say uh, it's always a little bit awkward when um, as somebody who is tasked with Christian leadership to speak about respecting your Christian leaders... Seems like a bit of a um, bit of a setup, doesn't it? So let's just read these verses, and uh, I'll say a few things for like the next twenty-five minutes about them. That was a joke, which you did, you didn't get. It's okay. Verse thirteen. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love, because of their work. So you can see how it feels a little bit awkward for me to talk about these verses. But the the first thing I would want to say, uh, in all sincerity, is to actually thank you. I want to thank you for acknowledging us uh, on the ministry team here and for allowing us to make a living, for allowing us to give our best human energies towards this whole gospel enterprise thing that we've got going on. I really deeply appreciate your generosity, both financially, also personally, must say, those of us on the ministry team feel like we are one of you, just the same as you. I, I understand that you might think of us as being a little bit different, like, I don't know, maybe we've got an extra chromosome or something. But I, I really sense that you're for us. That's not that common in Australia. So I do want to say thank you. But I also would like to appeal to you to continue to be for us, especially when we're dealing with things that are not straightforward. 
uh, when things might be difficult to hear. Got to say, when I um, first came into this line of work 17 years ago, I was unprepared for the unstraightforwardness of the task. I think I was prepared for opposition from Satan, like as much as you can be, and opposition from people who are hostile to Jesus, but I did not realize how complex caring for people is, especially when you've got to have those difficult conversations. And I'm, I'm not at all exaggerating at this point. I would rather take a funeral than doing the admonishing thing. Uh, I lose more sleep. I get more ulcers, more grey hairs, more worry lines from having those difficult conversations than assisting in the respectful commemoration of the end of a human life. That's difficult. And I'm just asking that you would continue to be for us, even amidst difficult things to hear. Next in this section, we see the Apostle Paul broaden the scope of relationships to all of our relationships. Let's read from verse 13. Live in peace with each other. Mm. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Man, you uh, hear those verses and it sounds almost idyllic. Uh, you know, like some sort of nature retreat where you might expect a perfectly symmetrical butterfly to gently land on your shoulder as you receive a relaxing massage to the sound of waves lapping on the shore. You know, the gentle patter of rain on a tin roof. But actually, it's hard work to make this happen, isn't it? How about I just read each line separately and I'll just let it sit with you for a few seconds to think of what that might require of you personally. Live in peace with each other. Warn those who are idle. Warn those who are disruptive. Oh, by the way, it's not just the ministers that have got to have the difficult conversations. You've got to have them too. You know, if someone's been divisive, you need to talk to them. You've got a friend who's disruptive, you're married to a disruptive person, you've got to say, cool your jets. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure no one pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone. Man, it sounds like you need a massage after that, don't you reckon? You know that word for always, always strive to do what is good? That word for always strive, it's the same word as for persecute or pursue. In other words, if we're going to do that, it's going to require energy, intentionality, doggedness, militance. Uh, literally, always persecute what is good for each other. A church that pleases God is going to be filled with people who pursue goodness, 
for one another, and in fact everyone with the same energy, the same militants with which the Thessalonian church had been persecuted by its hostile oppressors. A church that pleases God will, will both hold its leaders in high regard because of their work, but also doggedly love one another. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we see that a church that pleases God will be filled with people who please God in their personal spiritual disposition. By that, I just mean their default attitude, our default attitude of thankfulness and prayerfulness, regardless of their circumstances. And we learn this from the most compact clump of verses in the New Testament. That was our memory verse. Let's read it again, verse 16 to 18. Rejoice always. You know, woo. Um, Pray, let's not do that though. Uh, We'll just read the verse, okay? (laughs) Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Eight or nine words in the English is all it takes to communicate what our basic or default temperament ought to be. Just eight or nine words, right? And if you look carefully at them, you can see that each of them has the same time marker. When should you rejoice? When should you pray? When should you give thanks? Well, always, continually, in all circumstances, all the time, in other words. I think we live under an illusion that we have privacy and private lives in our modern age. I just don't think that's the case because there are, there are CCTV cameras everywhere. Uh, you know, I think in the years to come, you'll be going for a job and you're going to miss out on it because they'll have a CCTV picture of you picking your nose from 20 years ago, you know? They say in London, you're never more than six metres away from a rat. I don't think you're more than six metres away from a camera, a surveillance camera. And uh, if you think London's bad... Man, China is the place where they're really watching you. You know, by 2018, the Chinese government had installed 200 million surveillance cameras across the country. That amounts to one camera for every seven people. You'd think with like 1.5 billion people in the country, you might be able to fly under the radar, wouldn't you? (laughs) But not in China. All they need is a single image and you are toast. You know, last year, a reporter volunteered to go undercover to see how accurate their surveillance system is. His photo was added to a database of residents in the Guayong uh, district and he was flagged as a suspect to keep a watch on. Seven minutes is all it took. Seven minutes to identify his image and to alert the Chinese authorities of his location. You see, you live in China, you are being watched all the time. All the time they know what you're up to uh, and we're probably not that far behind here. All the time you're being watched means you cannot hide who you really are and you cannot hide what you're really like. Now, if people were to watch us all the time, if they were to find out what we're really like, would they discover that we rejoice always? Would they discover that we pray continually? Would they discover that we give thanks in every circumstance? It's quite an arresting thought, don't you think? And maybe the question is not so much about uh, do we do it all the time, but do we do it across all of the circumstances in every situation that we face? Do you find yourself rejoicing in the relentless routine of life? 
You know, I, I had uh, dinner with a friend of mine last night and he's, uh, he's got a medical condition and he doesn't actually know whether he's going to live or die. He's in that sort of weird limbo. And he says, you know, we ought to, ought to give thanks for the routineness of life, give thanks for the peace and the stability that that represents, and then those moments are much less routine and you find a secret joy in them. Could you say that you pray continually, not continuously as in every moment of every day, but through the range of things that you experience during the day? Well, you could do that because all of the experiences count to God, don't they? Do you typically thank God even in difficult circumstances? I don't. But I wonder if I did whether I would make the the most of those moments to grow and mature and to develop into a better person rather than a bitter person. Do you know, I think if we were actually like this, rejoicing always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances, we would become wonderfully content people. And if you've ever seen a content person, they are about as attractive a person as you can get. They're sexy people. Why wouldn't they be? if that is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, as verse 18 says. So a church that pleases God not only pleases him in terms of kind of warm relationships between members, but also in the personal, joyful, grateful, contented disposition of each of its members. Okay, so that is the second thing. Thirdly for today, a church that pleases God is one which pleases his Holy Spirit. And you can see there in verse 19, have a look, the instruction not to quench the Spirit. So how do we please God while we wait for His Son to return? Well, by pleasing His Spirit rather than quenching His Spirit. Now, in the very next verse, verse 20, the Apostle Paul has a specific edge about prophecy. We're going to get to that in a moment. Um, But more broadly, how, how do we please His Holy Spirit? Whenever we believe the Spirit's testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ, we please the Holy Spirit whenever we pursue godliness or holiness in our lives in the strength of the Spirit, not our self-righteousness. We please the Spirit whenever we grow in the fruits of the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We will please the Spirit when we use spiritual gifts, not for our own benefit, but for the building up of the body, which is the church. And of course, we quench the Spirit, we put out of His flames whenever we do the opposite of those things. Now, the Apostle Paul, he then moves on to a particular aspect of quenching the Spirit, and that is to treat prophecy or prophetic utterances with contempt. Okay, a lot of you probably when they read that verse, you thought oh, it could be interesting, but actually and I'm not really interested in it. But actually we have to be. He says, don't treat these things with contempt. Now that's not something the New Testament finds necessary to say elsewhere, but it must have been necessary for him to say it to the Thessalonians. So it begs the question for us, what is New Testament prophecy and, and how do we not treat it with contempt? Now that I think uh, turns out to be a very timely question for me. Uh, Because in the last couple of weeks, somebody has put a whole bunch of prophecies in my in-tray at work. And you can tell it's a prophecy because it's on, like, coloured paper. You know, like I've got the whole rainbow range here. And uh, you can also tell it's a prophecy because it's got the word prophecy in uh, full caps at the top. (laughs) Prophecy! (laughs) I think it's shouting at me, you know. 
Uh, and most of it's good, you know. It's like, oh, how good is it to pray? Uh, how, how good is it to, to walk with Christ daily? Uh, how good are Christian friends? Sort of sounds a bit like a Scott Morrison acceptance speech, doesn't it? How good is this? But then, did you get that joke? You got that joke. Okay. You guys are a tough crowd today, you know. Bunch of liberal voters. I'd make a joke about Labour leaders. I just don't know who it is at the moment, you know. Uh, there are the liberal voters, yeah. Hey, so it's okay, you know. And then there's, uh, then there's this page of prophecy uh, against lawyers in blue. And uh, man, how malignantly evil are the lawyers of today, it says, who refuse to supply subpoenaed evidence, who provide illegible affidavits, who try to change your testimony with their fiction. Man, I knew some of you lawyers were shady gangsters, but this is serious, isn't it? But then you read it and you go, oh, this is not the word of the Lord, man. It's just a personal rant, isn't it? And so probably what we need to say is not everything that we think is prophecy is actually prophecy. And I wonder if it helps to, to at least start by saying that we ought not to assume that prophecy in the New Testament is exactly the same as prophecy in the Old Testament. You remember when prophets in the Old Testament spoke, it was dictated by God. So much so they could say, thus says the Lord. No one other than the apostles in the New Testament era have the authority to say, thus says the Lord, with what they speak or write. Any authority that you and I have as New Testament believers is derivative of the authority of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. Basically, it's derived from the scriptures that they authored in the power of the Spirit. And can I say, if you have the hubris to think that as a New Testament believer, your words have the same authority as the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles, I might remind you that Deuteronomy says anyone who presumes to prophesy in God's name and the thing they prophesy does not come to pass, they shall be put to death. So just maybe think twice, you know. It might breed a bit of humility into you. So New Testament prophecy, it's not a direct continuation of Old Testament prophecy. That's really the business of the apostles in the New Testament era. But nor is it just the predicting of future events like we might imagine. You know, the predicting of world calamities and stock market crashes and tsunamis or even smaller, more personal events. Now, I am not saying that New Testament prophecy never includes future predictions, okay? Because there are a couple of examples of that sort of thing in the book of Acts. But if you look across the spread of what the New Testament says about prophecy, it seems to be a very broad gift, that's quite tricky to define precisely or narrowly. It's spoken of differently and separately to preaching and teaching, although there might be some overlap. In 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy is a gift in which intelligible and understandable words given by the Spirit are spoken by Christians to other Christians for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging them. Although those words might also have the additional effect of convicting unbelievers of their sin and their need for God. And the words of the prophets need to be weighed, presumably by Scripture, where you can do that because Scripture always has authority. And because these words are relayed by impure and faulty vessels, which is what we are as human beings. 
in cases where scripture is silent on whatever the matter might be, presumably prophecy can be weighed or tested by spiritually discerning people. And that which is good stays for our encouragement. And that which is wrong or bad can get flicked. Now I'd really like you to turn back to Acts chapter 2. It's page 1091. Acts chapter 2, 1091. It's talking about the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1091. The day of Pentecost. Just want to say a couple of things about it quickly. There you see the first Christians gathered together. There's only about 120, less than what we have here this morning. They receive the Holy Spirit. They start proclaiming the gospel in the understandable languages of all the people who were gathered there. And some local comedians think the Christians are drunk because they're speaking in a number of foreign languages. Then the Apostle Peter stands up and he says, Oi. It's the Greek word, right? Oi. They're not drunk. Actually, what's going on is the fulfillment of a prophecy from Joel chapter 2, which says, have a read in verse 17 with me. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Then have a look at verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And by the way, 3,000 were on that day, praise God. I want you to notice carefully, how does the Bible see Joel chapter 2 fulfilled? Not as it turns out in dreams and visions, but actually more in the, the way that ordinary believers speak intelligible words given to them by the Holy Spirit that testify to Jesus. Did you see that? Did you also see that this gift is broadly distributed? Sons and daughters, young men and old men, even on servants. You see, it's very democratic in its distribution, it seems. Now, at this point, it's probably worth me mentioning to you, there's a wide range of views on this. Believe me, I've heard both ends already this morning. <laughs> And uh, one of the views, you could build a pretty solid Bible case that this gift is no longer deployed. Now that we have a completed New Testament in the way that the Thessalonians did not have at that stage. But I think our general approach here at St. Matthews is one of cautious continuance. Okay? We don't think this gift has ceased, but we also don't think that everything that calls itself prophecy is prophecy, just because it's printed out on coloured paper. And so the question is, well, how, how do we... How do we not treat it with contempt? Because that's what the Apostle says to us. How do we see it employed here at St. Matthew's? Well, I would say whenever one Christian speaks intelligible words, informed by Scripture, given by the Spirit that strengthens and encourages believers or even convicts unbelievers. I see service leaders doing it regularly. I hear people in my growth groups doing it regularly. They, someone will say something and you just go, that's got the ring of God about it. Sometimes it's the result of study and reflection. Sometimes it's quite spontaneous. On occasions where we've had kind of open mic sharing, you can, you can hear this democratic gift being deployed widely and I'd love to do more of that. 
But I also want to say not everything has got to happen in the big group gathering. And I would say the more kind of spontaneous, the more specific, the more personal the word of prophecy, the less appropriate is the large gathering. And the more fitting is a conversation or a smaller group setting. Nevertheless, because we're keen to enact this right away, I just want to let you know that next week we're going to have a brother and a sister across all of our congregations sharing in some depth an encouragement or a challenge or a word from Scripture from either 1 Thessalonians, their personal Bible reading, whatever it is. And they're going to share with us not just what it meant to them, but how they think it's, it actually applies to us as a gathered community here at Manly. It is going to be a wonderful opportunity to hear from different people. And if, if you can't be encouraged by that, you won't be encouraged by anything. But as we finish today, following a very lengthy discussion of ways in which we might please God while we wait for Jesus to return, perhaps the most important thing for us to realize is that God is pleased with us. God is pleased with us. You know, Phil at the start, he shared about all the ways he thought he'd been displeasing to God. You know what Phil needs to hear, what we all need to hear, is that God is pleased with us. Don't mean it in a soppy way. I don't mean it in a cheesy way, but I do mean he is pleased. And you know what? I reckon we don't reckon with that often enough. God is pleased to be at work in us, even as we work to please him. And I think this is an entirely fitting way for the book, but also our series to finish. Let's read together from verse 23. May God himself give you a chance. Verse 23. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You know, we read a passage like chapter 5, take it seriously. It rightly feels like there is work to be getting on with in terms of our relationships in terms of our personal spiritual disposition, in terms of our reception of his Holy Spirit. But we must remember that God is at work in us and he's pleased to be at work in us. And that idea fuels Paul's closing prayer that God might sanctify us through and through. In other words, that we might become more like the Lord Jesus in every part of our lives as individual believers and as a community of believers. That idea informs his desire that our whole selves, our body and our spirit, even our soul, which means our whole life, might be blameless while we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at a passage like this one, and there is lots on offer, and it's all good, and it will keep us well-fed spiritually as we try to please God. But friends, at the end of the day, as we labor at pleasing God, we ought to know that he is pleased to be at work in us, because friends, he is faithful, and you know that he will do it. Now, as we finish, I'm going to give us um, about a minute to reflect on some of those things that were up on the screen earlier. I'm not going to say anything. I just want you to look at them and you might want to pray through one or two of those things that are of particular relevance to you. Um, Then I'm going to lead us in a final prayer based on verse 23.
then I'll tell you what we'll do next. A moment of quiet. Let me pray, O God, great God of peace, sanctify us through and through. Keep our whole spirit, soul and body blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to please him and to please you until he returns. We know that you're faithful. We know that you'll do it. For his glory, the glory of your name, we pray these things. Amen.